Russ Carnahan has been out of the electoral arena since losing a bitter Democratic primary in 2012. But now the St. Louis Democrat is back and he has his eyes set on the lieutenant governorship. Carnahan joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but uh, you no, know, I think my record speaks for itself. It's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Colleague Joe Manis. Joining us as our special guest, I believe our second guest who hails from Phelps County, we have in studio... Russ Carnahan, it's great to be here with you. The first guest, by the way, was Jack Cardetti, who is widely known as the pride of St. James, by the way. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in today, by the way. It's great yeah, to be course, here. Of course, he's lived in the city now for, what, 20 years? City of St. Louis? Moved here in 1996. Okay, so so you're a former congressman, a former state representative, and you are a candidate for lieutenant governor. And you're also a member of arguably the most prominent Democratic family in recent Missouri history. I mean, your father was a governor and uh, your mother ended up serving in the U.S. Senate and uh, after your father and brother's tragic accident. And then your grandfather was also in Congress. So, I mean, the Carnahan's and your sister used to be Secretary of State. So the Carnahan name is well known. I uh, I am blessed to come from a family that has uh, been active in public service and, and valued that. Um, you know, we, we lost my dad too soon, but he's been a great inspiration uh, to continue in public service. And uh, it's really been such an integral part of, of my life growing up uh, to watch him. You know, uh, a lot of people don't know, but uh, dad was also a... Uh, municipal judge in Rolla, and one of his favorite jobs in politics that nobody ever talks about, uh, he was on our local school board. And uh, he just loved being able to be close to people to, you know, do good work in the community and really give back. And so uh, most of the time I was growing up, he was really in those kind of very local, uh, close-to-home jobs and got to see him in action. In fact, when I graduated from high school, which is where, I, where did you go to high school, the, by the uh, way, in Rolla High School, okay, uh, not in St. Louis, but uh, he was the president of the school board and, and gave me my diploma. Uh, so uh, that was that was pretty cool uh, way to get your diploma when you're graduating from high school. No kidding. Although he probably kept an eye on everything since he was president of the school board. My dad was basketball coach when I was in high school, and my dad used to sneak in the principal's office and check my grades. Did your dad used to do that? Uh, if he did, I didn't hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> what, what prompted you kind of to follow in the tradition of your family? Because you, you managed, I think, a lot of your dad's statewide campaigns. You ran for Congress in 1990. Um, you, you were a state representative and in Congress. What kind of got the political bug in you, so to speak? Well, you know, looking back, um, I remember my first campaign, uh, I was eight. And uh, my dad was running for the state legislature. This was 1966. And I remember they had these uh, great uh, red straw cowboy hats uh, with stickers on the front that said, you know, Mel Carnahan for state senate. 
And uh, my mom, of course, organized uh, these things called the Caravan for Carnahan. And they had this flatbed Chevrolet truck with bunting all around it and an upright piano and loudspeakers and signs. And we would go into each community and uh, they would sing songs, uh, give speeches, then we would leaflet the town and then go to the next county. And so that was my first memory of politics, and it, it, was, it was really fun. Um, but you sort of fast forward from there, uh, I got involved in uh, Young Democrats when I was at Mizzou. Uh, we had a really great group of Young Democrats there uh, that, looking back, uh, included a lot of people that are active in politics today. But uh, Joe Maxwell was active then, uh, Mary Rhodes Russell, who's on our state Supreme Court, uh, Joe Driscoll. Uh, Joe Rohde, who's an alderman in the city, uh, you know, many people that, that I met during that time in college active in Young Democrats uh, have really been active and uh, in, in made a difference in our state. So that was really when I started getting active on my own. Uh, and then uh, my dad had been out of politics for many years and decided he was going to run for state treasurer, his first statewide office in 1980. And I actually accelerated my college to get out a semester early, uh, graduated in December of 79, and then I was his driver and campaign aide for almost a year uh, while he crisscrossed the state and uh, ran for his first statewide office. So it was an amazing education to do that, uh, just getting out of college and to see the way he interacted with people. Uh, it was a, a wonderful year uh, to spend. Now, didn't you run for Congress? From uh, southeast Missouri at one point early on? In, in 1990. Yes. And did you, I know you lost, but uh, Jason's often brought this up, that people often find that they learn more from their losses than from their victories. Is there anything you learned from that? Well, I think uh, I've heard Bill Clinton and uh, John Ashcroft uh, say variations of that quote, that uh, many people have launched their political careers by losing their first campaign. Uh, because really, if you run a if you run a good race, you're going to meet a lot of people. Uh, you're going to learn a lot about how camp campaigns work, and uh, it it can open doors for you to be active later. So, obviously, people would rather uh, win than lose, but uh, you can certainly learn a lot uh, from a campaign. Yeah, just for our listeners to give some perspective, John Ashcroft, who you could make a solid argument is one of the most successful Republican politicians in the state's history, given that no other Republican has won two consecutive gubernatorial terms, lost his first race for Congress in the late 60s and lost re-election to auditor after he was appointed and then went on to be attorney general, governor, U.S. senator, and attorney general. I know that your father um, lost a primary for governor, I think, in 1984, and then came back, was lieutenant governor, became governor four years later. So it's a sort of a winning by losing situation in, in some, some respects. So. so as you look at, you know, what prompted you now? Because as our, many of our listeners know, you won a very hotly contested contest for governor. I mean, I, I, I'm sorry, for Congress uh, in 2004. Right. And you uh, were the victor in the third district in a crowded field. I'd uh, like to say I was—I had just been reelected to my second term in the state house of representatives when uh, Dick Gephardt made the bombshell announcement that he was not going to run, 
for re-election after serving for I think 28 years. Yeah, well, he was going to make he's, he was making his last ditch effort to run for president. So uh, that launched a campaign that wound up uh, uh, being ten a ten way Democratic yes. primary, uh, and it was. Uh, it was funny because a lot of people in the race, I, I knew them well. Had been colleagues in the legislature or you know friends. Uh, it was a very uh, cordial uh, campaign, and but by the last month, uh, it got really crazy because uh, everybody figured out that I was leading, and then it turned into nine people running against me. Uh, so it was it was one of the crazier primaries I've ever been in. Well, one of but the more, it, but it yeah. was good to. Uh, uh, but that's not unusual when you have a seat that's been held for so long uh, come up. A lot of people are going to jump in. Right. So, I mean, of course, the side aspect of that, without getting into too much detail, is that um, uh, one of your opponents, who actually was the number two, uh, Jeff Smith, because of a complaint that was filed against him, I guess, by you yeah, after what it was should have, over. What, what should have been a garden variety um, um Federal Elections Commission complaint that would have been a right. a fine and slap on the li- wrist for what was you know we believed at the time a, a clear campaign violation uh, for uh, not properly reporting how funds were being used and spent uh, really turned into a you know very bizarre story uh, years later. Right, I and mean, without getting the, the 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 lesson out of that from Jeff Smith's perspective is never sign an affidavit that you don't saying that something didn't happen when it did. Yeah. And that's why Joan Barry, who was also one of your opponents, and also was allegedly involved in the same thing, because she didn't sign any affidavit and didn't deny anything. Nothing happened to Joan. But but it, 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 beca- it still remains probably one of the noteworthy primaries, Democratic primaries from in the St. Louis area. But you ended up being the victor. You ended up... Uh, Serving in Congress for several years, a well, number our, of years. And our, and our strategy in that race was, you know, to carry carry my base right. uh, from my home district and try to come in at least second place uh, in everybody else's. Uh, and so we, I think, we ran uh, the reason that we won. We had the right strategy to run truly a district wide campaign in a district that was really very diverse, one of the most diverse in the state in terms of having. Uh, partly urban core constituents, uh, partly suburban and part rural, all together in one congressional district. Yeah. Uh, so that was that was the unique thing about the district and uh, why I think you had to run that kind of race to win. And, and then you had, you know, your re-elections, most of which were n- not stunning until 2010 when uh, Ed Martin, the Republican, that was a really close one in this huge Republican wave. Yeah, and I wanted to ask about yeah. that because I think that you're, the 3rd District for a long time was seen as a safe Democratic district, probably because Jefferson County was such a Democratic stronghold. But do you think that your 2010 race was a lot closer because basically the turn of that county from blue to red basically started in earnest during that Tea Party year? Well, it's way bigger than one county in, in 2010. I mean, just to give you an example, um, in 2008, uh, my sister was running for re-election as Secretary of State, and she received the most votes uh, for a statewide candidate in the history of the state of Missouri. Uh, and of course, it was a right. big Democratic year. And, and her opponent was basically a placeholder opponent. That should be noted. He was not but, a really— But still, in the history like, of the continue. state, right, that's, right. that's 
I think, noteworthy. It is. Correct. And fast forward two years, and it was the worst election for Democrats in you know, in, in 50 years. Yeah, and, and while it, and while you were running for re-election and having us had, and, she was and running we, for the U.S. Senate and got creamed. And so we saw this wave coming, and, and you know, uh, Democrats across the Midwest, especially uh, Ike Skelton, who yes. was just a phenomenal public servant, uh, was defeated, and many others. And, you know, if we hadn't run the, the good offensive and defensive race that we had, had run— uh, we could have been one of those casualties, too, but it, that was that kind of year. Now, you were one of the few Democrats left standing in Missouri after 2010, but then immediately you became, a, after re, during the redistricting following the 2010 census, became the target of uh, Republicans in the legislature as far as when they were redrawing the congressional seats and Missouri was losing one, and they made clear from the get-go that you were— the person who was going to get well, it was a no-brainer for Republicans when uh, Missouri unfortunately lost a seat. The right. easy thing to do is to combine the the only two Democratic seats that were right next to each other right. into one, uh, and that's what they did. So no no surprise. But again, that was way bigger than just me. It, it was really impacted, you know, our uh, the representation of our state, uh, the representation of our uh, region. So. Uh, it was a, a much bigger loss than, than just me. And then, of course, then you ended up uh, challenging uh, Lacey Clay. I mean, the two of you were thrown into the same district. You ended up challenging him. I know you explored running in the second against um, Ann Wagner because parts of your own district were cut into there. Um, looking back on that whole 2012 experience, is there anything you learned from that or anything you regret from that? Or Well, no. I mean, I, I was— uh, very clear from day one, uh, I was going to fight to keep uh, fair districts uh, in the state. Uh, again, in, due to the fact that we lost a seat, you know how those were going to be laid out, and uh, I made it clear that you know it was my intention to run from the district actually where I lived. Uh, so I made that clear from day one, and you know we know what happened after that. Right. So again, I I. Uh, I did what I thought was right. Uh, that doesn't mean it was easy. Uh, and, you know, uh, I, I didn't win that race. Uh, when I lost, I congratulated uh, Congressman Clay and urged my supporters to support him. And, uh, you know, that, that's, that's, the way I, that's the way I did that. Yeah. And I and to be to be fair, I think if you had run against Ann Wagner, I really think you would have been the heavy underdog in that race because just as they drew both you and Congressman Clay in the same district, they drew her district to be fairly Republican. So I'm not you're basically presented with two bad choices essentially and both of them could have ended up with the same result. I'm not sure if that was your perspective, but from someone who follows congressional races, that seemed to be my perspective. So, yeah, again, I you can't redo history. You know, I, right. I made the judgment that I did at the time, and um, you know, you, you don't always uh, win in politics, uh, even when you're standing up for what you think is the right thing to do. But uh, to you know, in my opinion, that was that was the right thing to do. Uh, I did it on principle. Uh, fought the fight. Uh, you know, even uh, through the courts to try to get 
uh, better districts. Yes. And so, again, I don't regret trying to do that because I think it was the right thing to do for our state. Uh, but that's that's the way. And we have, you know, very uh, crazily gerrymandered seats uh, in the state that are not only gerrymandered, but where they've packed people of like parties into seats, so they're really not very competitive. Uh, so it really makes it difficult for the voters to have much choice. Yeah, it, it, I mean, that is what happened in Missouri with a Republican legislature. But to be fair, that's also what happened in Illinois with a Democratic legislature packing Republicans in districts. So it's bipartisan. I want to mm-hmm. make that clear. But continue, Joe. Yeah, so, okay, after you were out, uh, what did you end up doing? I know you're a lawyer, but just what did you end up doing the last few years? Yeah, um, my wife Deborah and I uh, continue to do some uh, legal and business and consulting work. Um, I've been involved uh, with launching a, a, a biomass energy company that's based here in Missouri, and uh, you know, been working on projects that we enjoy. But you know, staying active in politics, uh, helping other people, and so when uh, sort of had about halfway through 2015. Uh, really began to get a lot of encouragement to look at uh, one of the open statewide races. And uh, I never said no uh, to people when they would ask me about that. I said, I'm going to leave that door open, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about that. And the more I thought about it, the more I talked with people, the more I got encouragement from around the state, really began to focus on the lieutenant governor position, uh, that it's going to be wide open. Uh, it's the number two position in our state government. Uh, it's important to have that uh, someone who's uh, ready to serve if called upon, uh, someone that presides over the Senate, uh, you know, works in a number of key uh, commissions that impact the state with regard to seniors and veterans and economic development. So it's a, it's a key position. And, and frankly, um, I'm optimistic uh, about our state, but I'm pretty stubborn about the fact that I think it should be better. Um, and I think a lot of people feel that way, that in, in many ways our our legislative process have got, has gotten off the rails. Uh, and uh, we're in really, I think, critical need of some reforms that have really made it difficult for the will of the people to be exercised uh, through our elected government. So th- those are uh, I'm, I'm throwing a lot on the table sure. here, but but those are some of the real motivating things for me uh, to really step up because I, you know, I, I've seen it in, in watching others, uh, watching my father, but having good people stand up uh, at critical times to when you got clear needs in our state. Uh, that need to be addressed. Uh, I think that's important. So we kind of went through your electoral history of a couple of minutes ago, and and also noting that people who have lost before have come back to win. But one thing that we didn't mention is in the races that you won, including your first uh, primary for state representative, the 2004 primary for Congress, the 2010 race against Ed Martin, they've all been fairly close races in districts where many people expected you to do better. So my question is, how can you provide Democrats with confidence that if you're the nominee, you're going to be able to be a strong candidate statewide, given that it's a whole different ballgame from a safe district in St. Louis? You know, uh, you've got to take the the race you're in and the the time you're in and the issues that are on the table, uh, because they're all unique. 
uh, in, in any given race. So, um, you know, I, I have uh, been blessed to win most of the races that I've been involved in. Uh, they have been uh, competitive. You know, none of these races have landed in my lap. You, you know, I've had to go out and earn it to, to work like hell to, you know, win a race. And so uh, I don't take these things for granted. I mean, you've got to go out and work. Uh, you've got to earn it the old-fashioned way. You've got to go out there and ask people for their support. Uh, and that's the way you win races, even in uh, tough election years. Uh, so, again, I'm not afraid of those kind of contests. And frankly, uh, those kind of races, if you're in a primary, those kind of competitive races, they make you a stronger candidate for the general. The fact that you have to go out there and work uh, and, and talk to people and, you know, engage with people and listen, those things also make you a better elected official. Uh, so uh, people that, you know, have easy races and they land in their lap, uh, it might be easier on the candidate, uh, but it doesn't necessarily make you the, uh, the sharpest candidate or the best elected official. Uh, if you don't have those competitive races. Now, for the for at least uh, two other candidates, Tommy Pearson and Mike Parson, they each have state legislative records that I'm sure will be exploited. Bev Randles, who is also running as a Republican, has never run for election before. But one thing that I thought of is if you are the nominee, you have a pretty lengthy congressional record that mm -hmm. Republicans may exploit, whether it be your vote for the Affordable Care Act, whether it's your you know, positions on gun control whether it's your positions on a whole host of issues that could be liabilities for you. So how would you plan to combat those eventual attacks if you're the nominee? You know, uh, the campaigns are best when, you know, you're uh, on the offensive and you're telling your story, uh, telling what you stand for, and, and obviously uh, sharing your record. That's all public information. So uh, that's, that's all part of the process and part of the debate, which I, I very much welcome. Some of the things that have already been, you know, brought up is what is your relationship now with some of the, um, like, African-American officials in St. Louis and Kansas City? There are some in the St. Louis area who say they're still, mm, slowly hold a little bit of a grudge because you did run against Congressman Clay when your districts were combined. Um, any thoughts about that? Have you had to reach out at all? Just kind of your thoughts about how things are now. Uh, I've got very good in long-standing relations across the community, uh, including the African-American community. Uh, I'm well-known. Um, uh, they know my record, where I stand on issues that are important to them in terms of, of, of fair and equitable treatment, uh, being sure that we have diverse uh, uh, opportunities uh, in the workforce. Uh, so, again, you're talking about records. I've got a very strong record with regard to those issues, and they're well-known and, and just have a lot of very good personal relationships in the community. Now, one of the reasons why Joe may have brought this up is your primary opponent, Representative Tommy Pearson, is an African-American. He's a state rep from North St. Louis County. And this is what he had to say that he brings to the ticket. This was He said this before you announced. So I want to just make it clear to our listeners this is not an attack on on our guest here, but this is what he said he would bring to the ticket if he becomes the Democratic nominee. Costa's going to have a hard time without me. Peter Kinder has a way of, of picking up a lot of African-American votes. 
And I read a poll that says he was going to get 20% of the, of the African-American vote. If that happens, I don't see Costa winning. The only way he's going to win is I keep those votes at home. Uh, and so they're going to need they're going to have to embrace me whether they want to or not. So just for our listeners, uh, Representative Pearson was referring to Attorney General Chris Coster, who's the likely gubernatorial nominee. He was also referring to Lieutenant Governor Peter Kinder, who is running for governor. So in that as qu- a Republican, as a Republican, there's mm-hmm. a lot of what ifs in that quote. Peter Kinder may not be the nominee. He's running against three other strong <laughs> opponents. But rather than you directly respond to that, like, what do you bring to the ticket? And how, how and given that there has been schisms in like 2014 in St. Louis County between Democrats of, of, you know, white Democrats and black Democrats, what do you think you would bring to the ticket given that you need that turnout in order to win statewide? Well, first of all, uh, I've represented when I was in the state house, a uh, very diverse uh, district uh, in uh, near south side of the city. Uh, when I was in Congress, I represented, again, a, even a more diverse district, but significant minority population, uh, suburban and rural population. So uh, I've been very engaged with all those communities. Uh, you know, we even had the International Institute there in South City that you know deals with, with uh, multiple ethnic groups that are here in our community um, from uh, you know, Bosnian, Hispanic, Vietnamese, you name it. Again, I've been very involved with those communities. Uh, I'm well known. So uh, I think in terms of, of promoting diversity, in terms of being inclusive in the way I've operated, uh, in the way I've organized my staff, uh, again, I think that's well known. Uh, and that's really important in a state like Missouri because we have, you know, obviously two urban centers in St. Louis and Kansas City, uh, Springfield being our third largest city, but a lot of small and medium-sized towns in between. So it's a, it's a, it's a really complex and diverse state. And one of the things, uh, in just in my personal experience, growing up in a, a small rural community uh, in Rolla, uh, we still have our family farm uh, in Phelps County, uh, but being uh, very, uh, very much in the community here in St. Louis, understanding that diversity and, you know, what makes up this amazing and unique state we live in, I think those are things that are very important uh, that I bring to the table. Now, the fact that you did grow up in Rolla, you know, as, as you just mentioned, does that give, would that help you, I guess, one of the problems with Democrats is that often many of the statewide Democrats in Missouri did not are not from rural Missouri or have mm-hmm. spent very little time there. Um, you, in some ways, would be an anomaly from the fact that you grew up in uh, rural Missouri. Uh, so I'm just interested, is there anything that you think in particular that either your connections or things that you understand about rural Missouri. Some people always said that that was one of the things that helped your father was that he had an understanding how, Mm -hmm. I mean, his contention was, and I heard him tell me this many times, was that he said for a Democrat to win statewide, he said they can't lose too badly in rural Missouri. And he contended a Democrat needed to get at least 42 or 43% of the rural vote. Do you think you'd be able to do that? Anything particular that you think you'll be able to I do, and bring I, I, to the, the table because of that? 
Yeah, I think just growing up in rural Missouri and, and understanding uh, those concerns and their values, uh, they do have a different outlook than some of our uh, urban citizens. Uh, and frankly, a lot of, of folks in rural Missouri feel kind of left out uh, because some of their uh, state officials especially aren't showing up in their communities uh, or they're not talking about some of the issues that are unique uh, in rural Missouri. So, uh, and I think the other thing that's important in a state like this is looking for uh, bridge issues. I mean, oftentimes we see the urban and the rural communities pitted against each other. And I think it's really important to look for those kind of bridge issues that uh, can bring people in uh, the urban and rural communities together. One of the great examples when I was in the state legislature, we were having a hard time getting some of the rural legislators to support uh, funding for urban mass transit because they saw it as a takeaway uh, from their highway funds. And so, until someone pointed out that if the urban bus systems were to convert to uh, biodiesel, it would create this big demand for more soybeans to be planted in, in Missouri. So it's, again, looking for those kind of creative solutions where both sides can see a win-win. Uh, those, are, those are really important policy uh, initiatives in a state like Missouri uh, when you're governing by bringing people together instead of governing by division. And that's unfortunately uh, what's happened uh, too many times, I think, in our state. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned that because, as you alluded to, one of the jobs as lieutenant governor is presiding over the Missouri Senate. And unlike— Was that because I said the word division? No, that's because <laughs> you, you mentioned that as one of the things you have to do. But but potentially, uh, you know, when, when your father, for example, was in the state legislature and was governor, Democrats had a lot better standing in rural Missouri. I mean, even in Rolla, up until 2010, they had a state senator there. Now Democrats have been completely wiped out in rural Missouri in both the House and the Senate. Um, Northeast Missouri, which used to be a Democratic stronghold, has zero— zero state representatives and state senators that are Democratic. So my question is, given that the Senate is now super Republican, are you going to be spending most of your time as lieutenant governor presiding over the Senate and trying to exert Democratic influence on there? Or do you think that you'll be able to do the boards and commissions that you're also meant to do? Because for well, our for, before you answer, but our listeners right now, the current lieutenant governor, Peter Kinder, rarely presides over the Senate for very long because he doesn't really need to do anything. What would be kind of your, your view over that? Well, first of all, the, it's important that's, that's part of the job of lieutenant governor. And secondly is, you know, when you're presiding uh, and, you know, I, I served as a you know, temporary presiding officer in the House when I was in the House. And you know, your job is to, is to give people, you know, fair hearing. Uh, so, again, that's the, I think, the most important job of somebody who's presiding when, you know, whoever's in the majority at the end of the day, they're going to be able to vote to do pretty much whatever they want, but is there going to be a fair process? Uh, and so I, I think that's the job. And I, throughout my career in, in the State House of Representatives, in the U.S. House, whether I, and I served in the majority and minority in the, in the State House, the majority and the minority in the U.S. House. And whichever side of the stick you're on, you still need to, it's important to reach out and work with the other party 
to find common ground. And in the U.S. House, I was co-chair of the bipartisan Center Isle Caucus with Joanne Emerson uh, and others. Uh, and I had a very well-known reputation of working with people on the other side. Uh, we would almost always look for people uh, So we, when we were sponsoring legislation to uh, get uh, Democrats and Republicans to sponsor them. And uh, again, it's just smart to be able to reach out to do that. And if you don't do that, uh, you're going to miss out on some opportunities. There was a member of Congress from uh, Texas, uh, Dr. Burgess. He and I were co-chairs of the uh, bipartisan uh, multiple sclerosis caucus. And we were we helped get some of the first funding uh, for research on MS through the Department of Defense. He and I probably voted differently 98% of the time. But on this issue on MS research, he and I were, you know, arm in arm uh, and worked together on this. So if you don't look for those opportunities to, to work on the other side, uh, you're going to miss out uh, on what's supposed to be uh, kind of the magic of the legislative process. If And it's funny to even hear myself saying that now when we look at the legislative process that's so broken right now. But when a legislature is at its best, it's supposed to be like having the whole state uh, of Missouri in one room. To me, that was always one of the fascinating things about being in the state legislature. Literally, it was like having the whole state in one room, people from different uh, geographic areas, you know, different ideology, different professions, and somehow that collective uh, conversation was supposed to bring out the, the best in our state. And when it works well, it's, it's a really an amazing thing. But uh, again, too much today is the politics of division, uh, and that's not good for our state. And I think we're seeing a backlash to that nationally in our presidential race. We're going to see a backlash here in Missouri. People are just fed up with obstructionist politics, and uh, I think that's going to be an important thing to address in our state to really win back the trust of people that, that their elected officials are going to work to actually get things done, and the legislature is going to be more than a food fight. Uh, and that's why I think we're seeing some of this backlash nationally. Now, uh, you mentioned that you're planning on being in Hannibal this weekend. For our listeners, Ham Hannibal is the site the first weekend in March, annually, of Democrat Days. Now, it's a regional gathering. It's different than the uh, Republican Lincoln Days, which is a statewide thing. But Hannibal is always the first regional ga gathering, so I always often liken it to New Hampshire or Iowa and, and as far as the president's stuff, in that if somebody's going to announce or if somebody's going to do something, they usually show up in Hannibal. Now, as Jason mentioned, used to be that that, that neck of... Um, Missouri, there was a number of Republic, I mean, Democratic legislators and others who would be there. Now there's nothing. There are some Democrats, but they're local. They hold local mm -hmm. um, Han offices or judgeships in Hannibal or in nearby. I'm just interested. What is going to be your message um, to uh, the Democrats up there? Because there are rural Democrats who show up at that thing, but they often feel pretty beleaguered these days. Um, Chris Coster is going to be there. There's going to be a number of uh, Democratic uh, people who want to win this November. I'm just interested in your in your thoughts about what your message is going to be. 
Yeah, well, first of all, there are some very enthusiastic um, rural Democrats out there. Recently, I've been down in southeast Missouri and central Missouri and northeast Missouri. Um, really good crowds, good enthusiasm. And, and frankly, one of, the, one of the issues for people running statewide uh, is, is the, the, the first thing. You have to show up. Uh, in rural Missouri. I mean, just the fact that you show up in a community shows to them that they're important and you want to hear what they have to say and that you want to learn from that. And so uh, that's really the the basic thing. And I think, frankly, some Democrats have uh, really, because maybe uh, some of the rural communities, uh, Democrats have not run well in, and so they've almost uh, looked past them. Uh, so I think that's really a mistake. Uh, so you have to show up, and uh, you can learn a lot uh, about what the needs are when you're there and you listen. And again, it makes you a better candidate. Uh, it can make you a better elected official. And it can really help understand how you can bring some of these diverse pieces of our state and diverse interests together and actually get things done. And I'll give one example. There was a former legislator from down in southwest Missouri, uh, Dr. Tommy McDonald. You may remember him. He was in the state house, I think, back in the 80s and 90s, I believe. His district was about a 38 uh, percent Democratic district. So a normal Democrat would never get elected there. He ran as a Democrat. Uh, everybody in the, in the whole county just called him Dr. Tommy because he had delivered virtually every baby in the county. Uh, but he had his own network, well-known, well-respected, ran as a Democrat, and got elected. And I always use him as an example. If you, if you have the right Democrat that is, you know, understands their community, has good relationships, you know, has values that people share, they can get elected in – if, if he can get elected there, they can get elected anywhere. So I think part of that is on Democrats, that we uh, haven't really uh, helped candidates run, even in some really tough areas, because uh, I think we have a good message uh, to tell and a good story to tell. I mean, we're the – Democrats are the party of Harry Truman and – uh, you know, Mel Carnahan and, and, you know, Claire McCaskill. And it, it's very common sense oriented, get the job done Democrats. And that's what Missouri Democrats are known for. So that's, I think Democrats can compete. And you also have to appeal to people, frankly, beyond party labels, because uh, not everybody these days, th you know, believes they're in one party or another. And you've got to have a unifying message. And again, common sense, get the job done uh, messages that people can relate to. And they think they're, you know, people in government are actually working for them and uh, they're not there doing the bidding of special interest. So my final question for you, which I'll actually leave with a clip is, you know, your views on, you know, historic preservation tax credits or low income housing tax credits or presiding over the Senate or any other things, I'm sure will set the political world on fire. But and I, I don't mean that sarcastically. It was kind of a it was kind of a joke. But it's still really. funny. They, I tr it was it was that for, felt our, for the junkies for the who for the junkies, the and they are yes. legitimately important things. Yes. But really, down ballot races like the one you're running in really 
are impacted by the presidential contest and maybe the U.S. Senate and gubernatorial contest. I want to play a clip now from the current lieutenant governor, Peter Kinder, when I asked him what impact he thought he would have on the Republicans if Donald Trump was the presidential nominee, which is looking more and more likely by the day. And then I'll have you provide your own perspective on that. I think Trump is running very strong in Missouri. Uh, should he be the nominee, I will run with him on the ticket, and uh, he will bring all kinds of new voters, I think, to our, to our banner. Uh, it's certainly unconventional. It's like nothing we've ever seen in American politics uh, that I'm aware of. And, and it's, uh, so we're on uncharted seas, but I think it looks very promising. And I don't think this state is going to vote for another four years of the Obama-Clinton uh, agenda. So that is the current lieutenant governor's perspective on Trump being the Republican nominee. I'm going to take a wild guess and say that you have a different perspective on how it will impact a race like yours. Well, I think it's it's more than just my race, but, you know, the, it's, it's certainly Trump has been a phenomenon, uh, maybe a more of a reality show phenomenon in that has upended our politics, uh, particularly in the Republican Party. And uh, to see traditional Republicans uh, that feel like even before Donald Trump that their party was being uh, taken over uh, or gone, you know, so far to the right, now to have it uh, taken over by uh, Donald Trump is a really uh, pretty amazing phenomenon. So it's kind of like the car wreck alongside the road. You know, people are going to slow down and watch, but I think ultimately uh, they're not going to think he's presidential material. Very entertaining. Uh, it's very entertaining. But, you know, I don't want an entertainer to do uh, you know, surgery on me or, you know, to fix my car or to be my lawyer or, or you know, any other. It's great entertainment, but that's not who I want to be president. So I think I think there is a ceiling on Trump. Uh, as you see the field narrow down to other candidates, I think you may have some more uh, close contest. But the, the non-Trump uh, voters in Republican polling are still higher than uh, Trump's numbers. So if it ever gets to be a, a single alternative, that may change within the Republican Party. And we Party. may be talking about Ted Cruz's impact on you or Marco Rubio's So, So do you think, I mean, let's say, I mean, Hillary Clinton, who is probably the likely nominee, I mean, it's, although there is some excitement for Bernie Sanders, and I'm not, but I'm just saying that based on the numbers now, she's definitely uh, in the stronger position. Uh, do, do If Hillary Clinton's a nominee, is that going to help or hurt you and others on the statewide ticket in Missouri. Should should you be the nominee for lieutenant governor? Well, I, I believe that the, the Democrats are having a much more civilized debate uh, on our side, uh, debating real issues. And frankly, I think uh, the contest between Clinton and Sanders has been a really good one uh, that's helped energize our party across the spectrum and that uh, the Democratic Party will come together behind uh, one candidate, and that's going to be a great alternative to whoever the Republicans pick. So in Missouri, you know, what is, how does that matter? Uh, it's just one more, uh, one more piece of the political puzzle, I think, uh, to energize people that, you know, this is really important to come out and vote in this election. And we have obviously uh, a governor's race and a Senate race that are going to be marquee races this year uh, that are also going to help get people out. 
So mm-hmm. we're out of time. Thank you so much for, for spending right. some time with us today. Um, for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. It's J M A N N I E S. And I believe we can follow you on Twitter at Russ Carnahan. Is that correct? At Russ Carnahan. Follow him all the way through this crazy election season. We'll be back next week. Until then, so long. <laughs> <laughs>